My name is Astabali. I'm the co-director of the UCLA Center for Near Eastern Studies. It's my distinct pleasure to welcome you to the opening session of our conference on understanding the new Middle East. I want to take a few moments to say a couple of words about our center and other conference sponsors before turning the floor over to Professor Jim Gelvin. The Center for Near Eastern Studies, which is currently celebrating its 60th anniversary, is an interdisciplinary research center and hub for scholarly collaboration and support for undergraduate and graduate language study of the critical languages of the region. We also serve as a resource to the UCLA campus and the broader public in bringing essential programming about the <laughs> Middle East to our campus through public lectures, workshops, symposia, and conferences. Nothing could be a better reflection of the kind of collaborative cross-disciplinary scholarship, research, and programming that we hope to support than today's conference. We are also fortunate to have support and partnerships across the UCLA campus that enable us to put on an extensive array of programs spanning disciplines, methodologies, histories, geographies, and subject matters. Today's conference was made possible through grants from the Luskin Endowment for Thought Leadership, the UCLA College of Letters and Sciences, the University of California Office of the President, multi-campus research programs and initiatives funding, the UC Humanities Research Institute, and the UCLA Office of Interdisciplinary and Cross-Campus Affairs. Of course, beyond such sponsors and partners, the truth is that a conference of this scale and magnitude would not be possible without, first, excellent administrative and logistical support. We owe an enormous debt of gratitude to Nina Alevi, Joanna Romero, and Barbara Blankenship for the work that they have put in behind the scenes with organizing the event. Um, most of you have corresponded extensively with Nina in particular to make your participation today possible, and I really want to recognize her work and the work of the rest of our staff in making this conference a reality, and we'll make sure that we have a number of opportunities to thank them over the course of the next two days when they're in the room. Um, what has made serving as a director and now co-director of the center such a pleasure for me is the opportunity to collaborate with my colleagues across the humanities and social sciences whose research is focused on the Middle East. That is especially true of the colleagues who took a leadership role in conceptualizing this conference thematically and structurally. I want to thank my <laughs> colleagues Jim Gelvin, Omar Boom, and Kevon Harris for their partnership in developing the idea of this conference, and particularly recognize Jim for what you all know already is the leading role that he has played in pulling all of this together. We are honored to have an amazing array of presenters and respondents gathered together over the next two days to grapple with new framings for the study of the region at a time of disorienting change. We are particularly grateful to President Marzuki that he agreed to give the keynote for the conference, which will provide us with the perspective of someone who has been a key player in the tumultuous and challenging crises that we are studying and represents perhaps better than anyone the opportunities presented by the developments that we are addressing. My thanks to all of you for agreeing to join us for what I am confident will be an exciting two days of scholarly engagement with topics, with the topic of the New Middle East. As a reminder to audience members who are not participants um, and who are joining us over the next two days, this uh, conference facility requires that you check in at the front at, of this room upon re-entry to the room for each panel. So we're required to take attendance on a per panel basis. So please help us with that by making sure that you re-register at the beginning of each panel. And it is now my pleasure to invite Jim Gelvin to offer some opening remarks on the theme of the conference. Thank you, Ashley. Uh, the phrase the New Middle East uh, in its current meaning was first articulated by Condoleezza Rice in 2006. She used it to refer to the Middle East that the Bush administration was going to emerge in the wake of the American invasion of Iraq. According to Rice and the rest of the Bush administration, uh, the American invasion would create a democratic Iraq, which would become an inspiration to the rest of the Middle East and the region as a whole. 
Kings and dictators will heed the call of democracy and thereafter open up their governments for popular few. The reality, of course, was quite different. Besides leaving close to 4,500 Americans dead and an estimated one half million Iraqis, the American invasion created a weak, inefficient, and corrupt government in Iraq. It didn't even create a weak, inefficient, and corrupt democratic government in Iraq. According to the Democracy Index, published by the Economist Intelligence Unit, Iraq is a hybrid democracy. That means it is a democracy in name only. As of 2017, The Economist ranked uh, Iraq only four places above full-blown authoritarianism. The invasion left a big, fat, geopolitical hole in the center of the Middle East. Iraq, of course, used to counterbalance Iran in the Middle East balance of power. Now Iraq is too weak and divided to counterbalance much of anything. And Iran interferes in the internal affairs of Iraq with impunity. But Rice was correct in one sense. The American invasion of Iraq was one of two events that created the new Middle East. The other event that created the new Middle East took place seven years later. On December 17, 2010, a produce vendor named Mohammed Bouazizi burned himself to death outside a municipality building uh, in a small town in central Tunisia. Earlier in the day, a policewoman had confiscated his goods, and he was humiliated when he went to complain. An uprising broke out first in Tunisia, then spread to Egypt and beyond. By the time the dust had cleared four months later, protests and uprisings had broken out in 18 of the 22 member states of the Arab League. That they did so was a testament to the loathing many Arabs felt towards their governments. It was also a testament to the diffusion of global norms of human and democratic rights and social and economic justice. It was certainly not a testament to the failed experiment of uh, Operation Iraqi Freedom. Now, we all remember the crowds in Tahrir Square, Cairo, chanting peaceful, peaceful, and the people want the fall of the regime. We all remember how those crowds purportedly brought down a government in a mere 18 days. We all remember how a movement that started in Tunisia and spread to Egypt then spread to Morocco, Libya, Yemen, Syria, Bahrain, and even Saudi Arabia. This was to be the new Middle East. Unfortunately, the reality was quite different. In Egypt and all the monarchies, the forces of reaction snuffed out the demands for change. In some places, such as Egypt and Bahrain, government oppression went from bad to worse. Syria's bloodbath shows no sign of abating. For that matter, neither does Libya's or Yemen's. In Syria, Libya, Yemen, Iraq, even Tunisia and the Sinai, the weakening of regimes or their diversion of their attention created an environment in which violent Islamist groups might breed. In the most brutal war zones, Syria, Libya, Yemen, Iraq, entire towns and cities have been laid waste, their populations scattered. And Saudi Iranian competition, along with American and Russian repositioning, has fanned the flames of intrastate and interstate conflict. These, then, are some of the contours of the new Middle East. Now, to help us understand what this new dispensation is all about, we brought together a truly remarkable group of academics, policy analysts, and activists who have studied and written about these contours. Over the next day, they will be exploring 
uh, a range of topics, including some of the following. First, what is the legacy of the protests and uprisings of 2010, 2011? What are the roots and long-term effects of these events? Should we view these protests and uprisings as an aberrant and singular event, or do they present, uh, represent a tectonic shift in popular attitudes towards government, political community, social and economic justice? And what have been the effects of the uprisings on cultural producers and cultural production? What is the combined legacy of the glorification of, of neoliberal values, the broadening and deepening of communitarian sentiments, of sustained political violence and dispersion on the civic fabric and psychic uh, constitution of the inhabitants of the Middle East? What is the future of political Islam? Will moderate Islamist groups continue to work within their respective systems, or have recent events demonstrated that such activities and moderation are pointless? And what is the future of radical fringe of the Islamist tendency? What will the demise of the caliphate mean for the future of ISIS and other jihadi currents? Will it strengthen them or weaken them? How will recent events affect the state system? While it doesn't appear that the state system in the Middle East as a whole is under threat, what does the disintegration of structures of governance in Syria, Yemen, and Libya, and the concomitant rise of sectarianism and warlordism there, what do they mean for the futures and futures of the neighbor? What does the repositioning of great powers for, uh, mean for international relations uh, of the new Middle East? It appears that after half a century of dominance in the region, the American moment has waned. Are we headed towards multipolarity within the region? And considering the region's political and economic state, does it still matter? What about uh, uh, intra-regional dynamics? The defining regional dynamic today is a competition between Saudi Arabia and Iran. Will that competition continue to rend the region through proxy wars? Will the competition escalate? Or might some form of detente be affected, as the Obama administration sought to establish? What will be the place of the new Middle East in the global economy? The Arab Middle East is, next to sub-Saharan Africa, currently the least globalized region on Earth. As the, as the price and importance of Middle Eastern oil has continued to decline, so has the economic prospects for the region. Is there any way to reverse that trend? What is the future of national economies in the region? Since 1976, when Egypt was compelled to implement neoliberal economic policies for the first time, the domain of neoliberalism has only expanded in the region resulting in hybrid economies, crony capitalism, widening income inequality, higher levels of poverty and unemployment, and popular resistance. Since global economic institutions appear to be one-trick ponies, can there be any relief for beleaguered populations of the region? Finally, what will the new Middle East mean for uh, those beleaguered <laughs> populations? What I'm referring to is human security what the United Nations Development Program defines as the, quote, liberation of human beings from those intense, extensive, prolonged, and comprehensive threats to which their lives and freedom are vulnerable. People in the Middle East are now facing, and will continue to face, numerous challenges to their security, from bad governance and political violence, to population growth, environmental degradation and climate change, to subjugation of women, inadequate access to education and health care, unemployment and economic stagnation, poverty and physical displacement. Might something be done to alleviate these problems, or is a continued downward spiral 
inevitable. So let's get started. Our first panel today looks at the Arab world post-uprisings. Omar? Good morning, everybody. My name is Omar Boom. I'm an associate professor in anthropology. My, for those of you who don't know me, my work is on minorities, ethnic and religious minorities in North Africa and the Middle East, mostly on Jews, Baha'is, and Christians. So it's an honor for me to introduce the first panel, who features a which features a historian, a political scientist, and an economist. Before, uh, what I'm gonna do, I'm gonna introduce all the uh, speakers, and then I will, uh, in, in this or in, in, in the order of start with the historian, then political economist, and the, the, the political scientist, and then we'll have some time for discussion. Uh, let me first start by introducing Dr. Joel Bainin, is the uh, Donald J. McLaughlin Professor of History and Professor of Middle East History at Stanford University. Dr. Bainin was also a former president of the Middle Eastern Studies Association of North America. Bainin's research and writing focus on the social and cultural history and political economy of modern Egypt, Palestine, and Israel, and on U.S. policy in the Middle East. He's well known for his classic work on Egyptian Jewry. His most recent publications include Workers and Thieves, Labor Movement, and Popular Uprising in Tunisia and Egypt, published by Stanford University Press, Social Movements, Mobilization and Contestation in the Middle East and North Africa, and last but not least, The Struggle for Workers' Rights in Egypt. Uh, he will be speaking, his title of, uh, will be What Has Changed, What Hasn't. Uh, our second speaker is Ishaq Diwan, uh, who will be talking about crony capitalism in the Middle East what do we know and why does it matter? Uh, Dr. Diwan is a visiting professor at the School of International and Public Affairs at Columbia University, where he teaches courses on corporate finance and Middle East economics. He holds the chair of the socioeconomy of the Arab world at Université Paris, Sciences et Lettres, a consortium of Parisian universities based at the Paris School of Economics. Dewan's work on international finance is widely published. His research, his current research interests focus on the political economy of the Middle East, in addition to the broader development issues. Dewan's direct the political economy program of the Economic Research Forum, an association of Middle East social scientists where he manages research projects on the study of the political economy of state business relations and the analysis of opinion surveys. Last but not least, Mark Lynch, who will be talking about proxy wars and state failure after the Arab uprising, is a professor of political science and international affairs at George Washington University. He served from 2009 to 2015 as the director of the Institute for Middle East, Stud for Middle East Studies. He is the founder and director of the project on Middle East, uh, on Middle East political science. He's also a non-resident senior associate at the Carnegie Endowment of International Peace and a contributing editor of the Monkey Cage blog for the Washington Post. In 2016, he was named an Andrew Carnegie Fellow. Lynch publishes frequently on the politics of the Middle East. His work includes 
the new Arab wars, anarchy, and uprisings in the Middle East, the Arab uprisings explained, and the Arab uprisings, the unfinished revolutions of the new Middle East. Please join me in welcoming the first, let's start first with Dr. Baini. Good morning, everyone. Uh, thank you to the organizers for inviting me, and thank you all for coming. Um, Jim Galvin opened with some uh, very good questions, and I'm only going to address one of them. Uh, it's a combination of the one-trick pony Saudi regional domination issue. If we analyze the post-2011 Arab world, using the categories of the development of civil society, political liberalization, the transition to democracy, good governance practices, and state capacities, a great deal appears to have changed, mainly for the worse. The popular uprisings of 2011 not only failed to democratize the region, with the partial exception of Tunisia, they precipitated the collapse of the Lib Libyan and Yemeni state structures, drove Syria and Iraq into paroxysms of sectarian violence, and empowered the Praetorian dictatorship of Abdel Fattah al-Sisi in Egypt, which has been far more repressive than the regime of his predecessor, President Hosni Mubarak. But these paradigms and categories, which were widely used before 2011, overlook the continuity of the most important social, cultural, and political and economic structures of the region across the divide of 2011. Petro-capitalism centered in the Gulf Cooperation Council countries, first and foremost Saudi Arabia, has survived as the prevailing regime of capital accumulation. The mode of regulation of that regime of accumulation has been well characterized by Gilbert Ashkar as a mix of patrimonialism, nepotism, and crony capitalism, pillaging of public property, swollen bureaucracies, and generalized corruption against a background of great socio-political instability and impotence, or even non-existence of the rule of law. I would add to that description low human development indices, a repressive public culture, and the prevalence of Islamist movements as the main forms of political opposition. Politics remains polarized between so-called secular autocrats who often mobilize Islamist sentiment or exacerbate sectarianism for their own purposes. In Egypt, the brief administration of Egypt's President Mohamed Morsi and the dictatorship of Abdel Fattah al-Sisi and the Tunisian governments of Habib Asid and Yusuf Shahid have all failed to articulate a compelling political economic alternative to the, to the autocracy of their predecessors and the Washington consensus neoliberalism that has prevailed globally. The old Middle East was shaped by a repudiation of Arab nationalism and Arab socialism, the dominant political and economic currents of the 1950s and 1960s, and the reconfiguration of the political economy and political culture of the Arab world, highlighted by the military diplomatic realignment of Egypt with the West in the wake of the Arab-Israeli wars of 1967 and 1973. The dominant frames for that story have been the failure of state-led development and the rise of Islamic social and political movements. Those frames are not false, but they tend to obscure a much deeper structural transformation a restructuring of a good part of the Arab world around a U.S.-Saudi-Egyptian axis. That alignment ran parallel to and was sometimes in tension with the U.S.-Israeli alliance, and that tension has recently been removed. 
Anwar Sadat's announcement of the open door economic policy in 1974 and Tunisia's abandonment of its very limited socialist experiment in 1969 heralded the repudiation of state-led development. <coughs> Public sector workers and other beneficiaries of authoritarian populist policies erupted in broad-based but sporadic and politically disparate resistance to the new policies. The Egyptian Bread Intifada of January 1977, which was among the first of the 146 anti-IMF bread riots between 1976 and 1992. General strikes in Tunisia and Morocco in 1978 and 1981. Anti-austerity riots in Tunisia, Sudan, and Jordan uh, in 1984, 1982, 1985, and 1989. The trend towards diminished government spending as a percentage of GDP only began in earnest in 1982, in part impelled by the decline in state revenues as the post-1973 oil boom recited. The political economic realignment of the Arab world has been financed by a combination of investments from the Gulf Cooperation Council countries and loans from the international financial institutions and in the Maghreb, to a certain extent, Europe. By 2003-2009, the Arab Mashrek countries of Egypt, Jordan, Lebanon, Syria, and Palestine had received over 60% of all foreign direct investments of GCC countries, a total of 69.2 billion euros, far more than the 22.9 billion invested by European countries and the 5.2 billion of the USA and Canada. In the mid-2000s, these investments comprised over 70% of total foreign direct investment in Syria and Lebanon, 25% in Egypt, and 35% in Jordan. Such massive capital investments have made Gulf capital a strong component of the class structures of these Mashrek states. This is particularly evident in the banking sector, where Gulf capital is a substantial and often the largest investor in 14 of Jordan's 15 banks, 9 of 11 of Lebanon's largest banks, and 9 of 12 of Egypt's largest banks. In addition to this influx of private capital from the Gulf, Egypt, Morocco, Tunisia, and Jordan, along with Turkey, were targeted by the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank for economic reform and structural adjustment programs. The international financial institutions repeatedly issued over-optimistic reports about the putative successes they believed were the result of implementing Washington consensus economic policies. Some of that optimism was due to using falsified or unreliable national economic data. Some of it was due to inability to assess adequately the negative distributional effects of their policies. And some of it was due to ideological dogmatism. I lived and worked in Cairo extensively during the 2000s, including two years as director of Middle East Studies at the American University in Cairo. That very privileged position made me a highly visible expert, regularly consulted by international journalists covering Egypt. The corporate media typically uses quotes from experts as decoration on a story whose frame has already been constructed by the journalist or an editor. Nonetheless, I took every opportunity I was offered to speak to the international media. What did they want to know about? First, the status of the Israeli-Palestinian peace process. Second, the progress of economic reform and liberalization in Egypt. Third, the progress of democratization in Egypt. My usual response to these questions can be summarized as, one, there is no Israeli-Palestinian peace process. Two, 
While it became much easier for foreign capital to invest and repatriate profits, and the rate of GDP growth in the mid-2000s was impressive, there was no real economic liberalization. Conducting business successfully required loyalty to the regime and political connections, in particular to the circle around first son Gamal Mubarak, who controlled the economic ministries of the cabinet in the government of Prime Minister Ahmed Nazif from 2004 to 2011. Uh, to 20, uh, yes, 2011. Three, there was no substantive political democratization that was not easily reversible. The relatively more free press that emerged from 2004 on, the somewhat more permissive 2005 parliamentary elections that allowed 88 Muslim brothers to be elected in the first round before the regime panicked and clamped down hard on the second round, and similar measures constituted only a patina of reform that did not undermine the autocratic character of the officer's republic presided over by Hosni Mubarak. What was the story in Egypt during these years? I repeatedly tried to suggest that from the late 1990s and more markedly since the Nazif government took office in 2004 and accelerated the sell-off of public assets and the implementation of the Washington Consensus economic policy agenda, there was an extraordinary wave of strikes and collective actions by workers. From 1998 to 2003, there was an average of 118 collect contentious collective actions per year, compared to about 33 in the previous cycle of protest from 1986 to 1993. From 2004 until Mubarak's demise in February 2011, the average number of contentious collective actions by workers escalated to 388. While they were concentrated in the public sector or recently privatized textile and clothing industry, by 2007, the movement had spread into every sector of the economy. My editor won't let me write about that, was the response of one of the journalists I attempted to persuade that this was a significant phenomenon. Only a handful of stories about the largest and most protracted nonviolent social movement in the Arab world since World War II appeared in the US and European press during the 2000s. Instead, socioeconomic news about Egypt was dominated by praise for Egypt's annual GDP growth rates, which averaged some 7% from 2006 to 2008, and the World Bank doing business reports designation of Egypt as one of the top 10 most improved reformers in 2008, 2009, and 2010. In 1993, the IMF proclaimed Tunisia a prime example of the successful transformation of an economy from one heavily regulated by the government to one based on market orientation. French presidents Chirac and Sarkozy and many others hailed what they called Tunisia's economic miracle. The rosy macroeconomic indicators obscured Tunisia's persisting poverty and unemployment concentrated in the interior of the country and disproportionately among educated youth as well as the regime's appalling human rights record. Moreover, Tunis and the Sahel region remained, as they had long been, the richer and politically more central part of the country, while the center west and south were relatively neglected and underdeveloped. The per capita number of strikes and workers' collective actions in Tunisia was even higher than in Egypt, although they were typically briefer and less intense. The major exception was the six-month-long uprising in the Gafsa phosphate mining basin in the first half of 2008. It received minimal and belated coverage in the French press and no coverage at all in the major US media. 
Unemployment in the four phosphate mining towns ranged from 20.9 to 38.5%, and the poverty rates in the entire Gafsa governorate were 30 to 40%. The Gafsa rebellion originated as a demand for jobs. It was simultaneously an uprising against poverty and unemployment, intensified by the local implementation of neoliberal economic policies in the phosphate industry, a series of riots by teenagers and young men protesting their lack of economic opportunity and social marginalization, and a protest against the local faces of autocracy and corruption, the Gafsa Phosphate Company, and the regional branch of the Tunisian National Trade Union Federation, the UGTT. Similar conditions impelled Mohamed Bouazizi to immolate himself on December 17, 2010, inadvertently igniting the wave of popular uprisings and demonstrations that swept across the Arab world in 2011. Washington consensus economic policies, supported by foreign direct investment, failed to set any Arab country on a trajectory of sustainable development. The macroeconomic indicators reveal a structural crisis across the Arab world. Per capita annual rates of GDP growth in the Middle East and North Africa from 1970 to 2010 were lower than any other region in the Global South except Sub-Saharan Africa, although Egypt did significantly better than its neighbors during the oil boom of 1974 to 1985. From 1980 to 2010, East Asia outperformed the Arab states on the Human Development Index, which is a better measure than GDP of health, education, and standards of living even though the purchasing power parity adjusted per capita GDP of the Arab states was nearly a third higher than in the East Asian countries. The Arab states outperformed South Asia, but South Asia's PPP adjusted per capita GDP was only a little more than half that of the Arab states. The UNDP's 2003 Arab Human Development Report concluded that poverty in the Arab region is higher than usually reported in the statistics compiled by the IMF and the World Bank. The 2009 Arab Human Development Report estimated that the poverty rates for Arab countries from 2000 to 2006 was 39.9%. Poverty rates in Tunisia, 28.6%, and Egypt, 40%, were considerably higher than the 12.8% and 18.4%, respectively, according to the World Bank's World Development Report 2010. Unemployment rates in the Middle East and North Africa were the highest in the Global South and about double those of South, Southeast Asia and East Asia in the 1990s and 2000s. Unemployment rates for youth in the Middle East and North Africa were more than double those than elsewhere in the Global South in 2010, while the proportion of the population under 30 was the highest in the world. Unemployment rates of those with a tertiary education increased rapidly in the last two decades. What are the contours of the political economy of the new Middle East? The short answer is mostly more of the same, but with some rearrangement of the furniture. The most notable change prompted by the 2011 popular uprisings is that the GCC countries are playing a more aggressive regional political role aimed at repressing and containing the popular upsurge of 2011. This is most evident in the Saudi-led armed intervention to suppress the popular uprising in Bahrain in March 2011 and in the war against the Houthis in Yemen since March 2015, efforts in which the United States is fully complicit. The United States remains militarily engaged in the greater Middle East and has increased its arms sales and military assistance programs. 
It remains incapable of securing victory or even a semblance of stability in Afghanistan or Iraq. Consequently, the numbers of US forces have been dramatically reduced while special forces and drones have been deployed to Pakistan, Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, Yemen, and Somalia. Secretary of State John Kerry refused to call Abdel Fattah Sisi's ouster of President Morsi a military coup, as this would have required suspension of US military aid to Egypt. On President Obama's watch, the United States sold Saudi Arabia a total of over $115 billion in arms, more than any other administration in the history of the Saudi-US alliance. The Trump administration approved an additional $1.4 billion in May 2017, not the $110 billion announced in the wake of Trump's theatrical visit to the kingdom. The international financial institutions have doubled down. The new trendy buzzwords are inclusive development and inclusive growth, but there has been no fundamental policy reconsideration. The IMF's refusal to grant Egypt a $4.8 billion loan first discussed in fall 2011 on conditions significantly different than those it imposed over the previous two decades destabilized the presidency of Muslim brother Mohamed Morsi when the price increases and other austerity measures the IMF's conditions would have entailed were leaked to the press in late 2012. Consequently, Egypt was compelled to rely on Saudi aid and investment further consolidating the Saudi-Egyptian alliance as the backbone of regional reaction opposed to all forms of democratic political action by both secularists and Islamists who were willing to play by the rules of procedural democracy. The Saudis provided some $30 billion in aid over the next three years, but with oil prices low, a war to fight in Yemen, and a diplomatic row with Qatar, they could not keep Egypt afloat indefinitely. Egypt finally secured a $12 billion IMF loan in November 2016. Following the new script, the IMF's board of directors announced that the loan would restore macroeconomic stability and promote inclusive growth. After the loan agreement was announced, security forces deployed in Cairo to thwart anti-austerity demonstrations. The IMF's conditions for the loan included floating the Egyptian pound, reducing subsidies on fuels, and adopting a 13% value-added tax. The pound immediately lost nearly 50% of its value, and inflation rates spiked to over 30%. Observers are heartened that the annual in inflation rate in January 2018 was only 21.9%. From 2011 through February 2014, GCC countries invested $4.3 billion in new funds in Egypt. The largest Arab investor in this period was Qatar with $1.3 billion. Qatar has been supportive of the Muslim Brothers and was most likely partly motivated by a desire to bolster the Morsi administration. But maintaining political stability and ensuring that revolutionary elements did not gain ground was an objective shared by all the GCC countries. The UAE and Saudi Arabia were the second and third largest investors with 944 million and 925 million respectively. Kuwaiti and Bahraini investments were in the range of 225 million each. According to Egypt's General Authority for Investment and Free Zones, in 2015 total Arab investment in Egypt amounted to nearly 20 billion dollars. Saudi Arabia accounted for 27% of those investments. The UAE was in second place with 21.4%, followed by Kuwait with 11.2%. 
Before the break in diplomatic relations in mid-2017, Qatar ranked ninth among countries with foreign direct investment in Egypt, about a billion dollars. The pace of Saudi and Emirati investments quickened after the suppression of the Muslim Brothers. During Saudi King Salman's visit to Egypt in April 2016, the two countries signed investment agreements with a total value of $25 billion, although this is likely to some extent aspirational. In August 2017, Saudi Arabia announced a little bit more a $500 billion plan to create a business and industrial zone extending across its borders into Jordan and Egypt. By 2017, the Saudi investment in Egypt amounted to $7.2 billion, while UAE investment reached $4.9 billion. In June 2013, the IMF approved a $1.75 billion standby agreement for Tunisia, followed by a $2.9 billion loan in 2016. Echoing the statement accompanying its loan to Egypt, the IMF announced that the June 2016 loan was aimed at promoting more inclusive growth and job creation while protecting the most vulnerable households. The IMF's conditions for the 2016 loan included several that had been on its wish list since Tunisia first signed on to the Washington Consensus in 1986. The one difference was public investment to support growth and poverty reduction although it is difficult to imagine how a government constrained by an austerity budget could do this. Six months after the 2016 loan was announced, the Tunisian government announced that it would be selling its shares in three state-owned banks and cutting 10,000 public sector jobs. Tunisia has been wildly, widely hailed as the exceptional success in transitioning to, to democracy. Insofar as this is true, its foundation is the stabilizing role of the Tunisian National Trade Union Federation and the coalition government between the secularist Nida Tunis and the Islamist, or formerly Islamist, as the party now presents itself, and Nahda. But Tunisia's success is limited to procedural matters. Even in this respect, the repeated postponement of municipal elections, now scheduled for May 2018, the failure to establish the constitutional court stipulated by the 2014 Constitution, and the increasingly expansive role of President Bejikaid Esebzi in centralizing power in the presidency and undermining the legislature, just as his predecessors did, despite the lack of constitutional authority for many of his actions, mark the limits of Tunisia's achievements. In short, I'll skip all of the UAE investment in Tunisia and all of that. The broad contours of structural crisis of block development across the Middle East and North Africa region remain largely as they were before 2011. The current <coughs> modes of political economy and governance are no more likely to lead to self-sustaining self economic development or democratization than was the case before 2011. In 2011, the Arab peoples burst into the historical and political arena in hitherto unprecedented ways. That upsurge of democratic popular energy has been blocked and diverted, but the autocrats of the region are demonstrably uneasy. They have good reasons to be. The region is at an unsustainable impasse, although it is impossible to predict when, how, or by whom the current order will be challenged again. Thank you. Well, good morning, and uh, thanks again, Jim, for inviting us all together. This is an important moment in the region, and it's good to reflect 
together on the various dimensions of development in the region. Uh, being an economist, I'm going to focus more on numbers, and uh, I'll use a PowerPoint uh, instead of a prepared text. I guess it's one of our deformations. And I want to focus on the question that Jim asked about the future of the economy. Uh, drawing on work we've been doing at the Economic Research Forum, where we looked uh, kind of in, in, in some quantitative manner at the way state business relations have been evolving in the region and in the variations also that we can observe uh, between the countries of the region. So I want to show you some of this work to get a better feel of, of the differences that exist in the countries and especially in the places where 250 million people, Arab, live that are not at war where you know, growth is still feasible in some manner, albeit in, often in some constrained manners. So the, so the question I want to ask relate to the way in which politics have been influencing economics and the way they're likely to influence them in, in the future. It's been recognized, of course, that the way rulers try to align power and economics has been very central in the way economics has developed in the region, especially after the experience of the rise of the state in the 50s and the big rollback that had to uh, go through in, in the 80s. I mean, this was a, an extremely large rollback uh, when Mubarak inherited Syria, uh, inherited Egypt. Uh, the state uh, was spending about 60% of GDP. The day he left, it was only at 30%. And so throughout his career, he had to push back the state. And of course, uh, this, this generated uh, a lot of opposition. Uh, the state had to be replaced by a private sector. And, and Mubarak had to make sure that that was a friendly private sector. And, and of course, that has colored enormously what could happen in the economy. We've seen. Uh, enormous dualism, uh, concentration of power in a, in a small circle of cronies. And uh, this is, I think, a good example uh, of, of what has happened in, in many other countries, but uh, it has happened in different ways. And so we want to illustrate a little bit in the different ways in which th this happened. And then the big question for the future is how do these systems uh, respond to the big, two big shocks that have happened in the past few years, A, the Arab Spring, uh, and the clear rejection by the population of that model, the lack of good jobs, uh, the, 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 the corruption uh, of this type of neoliberalism, but also in parallel the, the, the dramatic drop in oil prices that made many of the, of the systems as they were working uh, not, not, not workable anymore. Um, now, with the rollback of the state, uh, public investment was completely cut, and the, the job of creating jobs and of growth was given to a private sector. Uh, unfortunately, while the rollback was enormous, the supply response of the private sector was timid at best. Uh, private investment did not replace public investment. And as a result, what we ended up uh, having in the region, this is around 2010, is uh, a very small formal private sector. Formal private sector is the sector that created the good jobs people aspire to. And uh, as you could see in, in red, 
this is the share of the labor force employed in the good private sector, it remained extremely small, barely visible. What is it, 12% in Egypt, 14-15% uh, in Jordan, uh, about the same in Tunisia. Uh, much of labor moved uh, or, or new labor entrants had to go into the informal sector, including those with, with good education, as you know, many graduates were coming into the market. And this clearly generated uh, a lot of frustration and I think was a major drive uh, in the Arab Spring. So this is the starting situation. Uh, and the question that we want to dig into a little bit deeper is, how narrow was this, this crony capitalism uh, that emerged after these neoliberal reforms? How did it work? Which mechanisms were used to confer privileges? Um, how did this sector perform? And, and, and what variations do we see across countries? Can we, can, we find, can, can, can we see variations in terms of the model, the models uh, of this alignment between public and private sectors, between power and money, that give us some indication on how the different countries uh, will, will potentially grow and create jobs in the future. And so uh, I'll focus first on the experiences of three groups of countries, the, the high oil, the middle oil, and the low oil countries. I'll argue that this distinction is important and has marked the economic and political histories of, the, of those countries. Then I'll, uh, I'll cover three more hopeful models, uh, Turkey, uh, Turkey, uh, Morocco, and Lebanon. And, and then I'll conclude with some ideas, uh, really, that I'll put for discussion on the ways in which these political economies can move into the future. Um, <clears throat> in terms of my distinctions between, between three types of, of economies and indeed of political settlements. This is based on recent work with Melanie Kamet, where we argue that uh, really high oil countries have increasingly focused on creating a protected private sector as a strategy of creating skin in the economy, if you like. Uh, you know, the, private the private sector is not seen as uh, a scary political force in the high oil countries of the GCC. The way uh, it happened in the middle oil countries, the, the Iraq, Syria, uh, Iran, uh, Libya of this world, where the private sector has been seen as a potential financier of the opposition and as a, as a threatening form of organizations that had to be uh, excluded, basically. Uh, the, the low oil countries have also sought to, the rulers, autocratic rulers, have also sought to manage the, the private sector, but by balancing exclusion and growth. They've tried to, to have their clients at the height of the economy uh, in order to exclude opposition, in order to get various favors that bind the, the, the elite together, uh, but not to the extent uh, of exclusion that we've observed in, in the, the middle oil countries where cronism was extremely narrow, literally a few persons from the, the, the ruling family uh, on top. This is a graph that illustrates this. Here you have the rule of law. This is the rule of law uh, in the sense of private property, not at all uh, in the sense of uh, human rights. That's measured by the word bank against oil rents, how, how large oil rents are. 
And as you could see, there are clearly three groups of countries that emerge in the region. The high oil uh, on your right uh, with pretty high level uh, of, of rule of law and actually a quite substantial private sector that has developed over the years. Uh, similarly for the low oil countries, uh, but it is really the middle oil countries where you feel the curse of oil. Uh, this is where the rule of law is extremely low and the private sector extremely undeveloped. Uh, and, 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 and so uh, we, we've really seen the emergence of three types of political settlements uh, that, that favor the private sector in very different ways. So let me go over now each one of those uh, uh, without a lot of details. Uh, focusing first on the whole high oil sectors. What's interesting in the high oil sectors is that you know, oil accrues to the state, and a uh, big question for the state is how to transfer or how much to transfer of these resources to the private sector. Uh, although over time it has transferred a fair amount in various ways, in subsidies, all sorts of subsidies, uh, they've allowed them to import labor freely, uh, energy was subsidized, uh, credit system. Uh, it remains that the private sector in the Gulf is largely owned by the state, actually. Uh, the orange lines here are the ownership by endowment funds uh, but uh, in different countries. But you can see also other players owning. These are the, the big firms traded on the stock exchange. Uh, banks, pension funds, uh, uh, insurance companies that are also partly owned by the state. So when we include all those, we end up with this kind of picture where the state is absolutely dominant in its ownership of the private sector. I must say the situation is not too different in, in Iran, uh, which is quite a different economy. Kevan Harris, who is not here, has done some interesting work showing that indeed uh, institutions, various foundations own much of the private sector. So the GCC current dilemma has to do with the fact that the state cannot finance these big corporations anymore, needs private finance, but it's a dual challenge because at the same time, the big challenge is to find jobs for Saudis since those cannot be employed in the public sector anymore because of lack of financing. So how to push those into the private sector? The big problem is that they're paid three times more in the public sector. So you even need to you either need to reduce wages in the public sector, increase wages in the private sector. And to do that, you may have to restrict entry uh, of expatriates into the private sector, so you either would hurt labor or the firms, or something in between. So that's the big political challenge. Uh, uh, and you want to do that by creating, uh, by reducing political risk, because the main finance will have to come from FDI and from attracting back capital flight by rich Saudis that have their, their money abroad. Now, the middle, the, the middle group, which uh, Springboard called the bunker states, are, are the most problematic because there the politics are not likely to be uh, helpful in terms of private sector growth. Uh, chronism has been extremely narrow in all those countries, but the political situation is fluid, and it's really the development on the political front that are likely to affect a whole lot the way the private sector develops. So, uh, you know, the situation in Algeria is, is interesting. All the major players seem to be 
against an opening up of the economy. Uh, we have the Flika succession, which is creating enormous risk and divisions within the elite. The situation in Iraq, uh, we'll have to see, it seems that uh, politics are becoming more competitive and we, so we may be moving to a different mode of relationship with the private sector. Uh, as I'll argue later, uh, uh, competition is, is, is not uh, a magic bullet in terms of, of the private sector. It creates a lot of macro instability. It also creates more, uh, more corruption, uh, less control. And, and as we see in the situation of Tunisia, it opens up a whole new set of questions for the private sector. Um, moving on, the situation in the low oil country is, is interesting. This is, uh, this is where we expect more action. The private sector is dominant. You don't see much orange in these ownership shares. Uh, the, the big question there is that of chronism. There's a paradox that uh, a close relationship between rulers and the private sector is, can be useful because it creates trends that are necessary for kind of private owner of capital to be confident and to invest for the future. But too much of this hurts growth in many ways. It lowers competition. It gives rise to informality. If you want to be either very close to the state or very far from the state, uh, it, it pushes a lot of capital to a few firms. And so it's an inefficient use of scarce capital. And many of these crony firms uh, are, are, are managed by people that are strong on, on loyalty rather than on, on skills. So the, really the question we want to ask is, is this close state business relation more like a Russian situation, a Korean situation, or a Mexican situation in order to evaluate their performance? Uh, is it Russian in the sense that uh, all the potential oppositions are excluded from the height of the economy? Or is it Korean in the sense that the ruler is managing very carefully that relationship for performance? Or is it Mexican where it is benign in a way because that relationship, what needs to be paid back by the firm is some form of political finance and, and some support, but not exclusion. And so less costly in terms of growth. Uh, now, I want to be able to go in detail into the study of Egypt. This is an example of what our work has done. We've studied Egypt, studied Tunisia, Morocco, and, and, and Turkey very carefully. But basically, you know, we put the finger on 32 connected, uh, connected businessmen that control 469 firms that manage to only employ 11% of the formal uh, labor, but get 60% of corporate profit, and believe it or not, 92% of formal credit going to the private sector. So pretty narrow, but not as narrow as in Syria or, or Iraq under Saddam. Uh, these are the various mechanisms of privilege that were used, a whole slew of them, because the Egyptian state traditionally has been, you know, extremely, let's say, uh, has many, many tools. Uh, extremely dominant in the economy, so uh, could provide privileges in, in various forms. Um, this is an example of trade protection. You know, as, as tariffs went down in Egypt, we observe at the same time non-tariff barriers going up, and going up mostly in sectors where these cronies worked. Um, we measure the value of political connection by looking at the stock market drops around the uh, revolution for the connected versus the non-connected firms. And so you can estimate the value of these connections, of, uh, and we found them to be about 23%. Uh, 
of the value of the firms, which is enormous. Uh, we looked at the impact of the entry of crony firms into particular sectors. And whenever they enter a sector, and they entered over the, the last 20 years, 50% of the Egyptian sector, so really penetrated the economies. Whenever they went into a sector, the growth of this sector went down for the various reasons I cited before. But these same sectors where they entered are sectors that grew very fast in other countries. So they entered the growth sectors as opposed to entering only rent-filled sectors, which is what happens, say, in Mexico, um, where, where privileges are used to finance campaigns and not just to exclude opponents. And so we calculate that with full competition, we could have imagined another scenario where Egypt could have grown 25% more in terms of job creation if it wasn't for that type of chronism. Uh, and that what, what was really happening is that uh, it's the middle-sized firms that were excluded by this competition by these big monopolies. And so firms in Egypt, this is age and, 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 and size, they, uh, you know, small firms age without growing. And uh, this big column, uh, the, the pink column, are the big crony firms that are dominated, the, dominating the market and not allowing this middle to emerge. And it's the middle size of firms that is dynamic and create jobs and innovate. And the contrast with Turkey, where the middle is much more populated, is, is very striking. Now, let me quickly go through three more hop hopeful models. Turkey. Turkey is very interesting because you've had, uh, <clears throat> under AKP between 2000 and 2015, you've had chronism, but it's a chronism that has fostered the inclusion of firms into the economy as opposed to the exclusion. There was this virtual circle where the Anatolian Tigers were supported through uh, procurement contracts and other subsidies by the AKP, voted for it, and so grew, allowed the economy to grow faster, uh, you, uh, became a much larger share of exports, got a lot of contracts, and voted for the AKP, so allowed this system to continue. It's, it's, it's an interesting model with a dominant uh, party that actually pushes for more inclusion as opposed to exclusion, and that generates growth and jobs. Morocco is a different system, much more controlled, uh, co controlled elites, but controlled for performance. And here you could see on those graphs that uh, firms, um, uh, the connected firms, and these are connected uh, uh, mostly through, through the palace and some four big families, received more credits, but also delivered more growth than the non-connected firms, even though they didn't face a lot of competition domestically, they faced international competition as the system was, was opened over time. Uh, and finally, the Lebanon is an interesting example by default, if you like. This is a system where, this, where, where, where uh, many firms are, 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 or several firms are connected, but they're only in 20% of uh, the sectors because the state doesn't have much in terms of range of intervention. It's a small state because there's no agreement to have a large state. And as a, as a result, we, we see cronism in a clientelistic and competitive system, which, which could turn out to be the case of Tunisia in the future. Uh, the nice thing about this, this graph, this is uh, job creation over time. 2009 was the, the, our last uh, uh, parliamentary election. The red line is the number of jobs created by the connected firms, they are connected to 
politicians of various parties. And you see they create a lot of jobs just before the elections, and that pushes the rest of the market down. Their job really is, I mean, the favor they pay back politician is to create jobs for the clients of, of particular parties. So this distorts the economy, but much less than the other cases because the state is, is smaller. So what to expect of the future to conclude, and these are really just ideas for, for discussion. In the middle oil countries, as I said earlier, this is kind of the, 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 the difficult cases, and the question is going to be what happens politically. Um, will, in many cases, as in Iran, the question is can the moderates push the conservatives to open up? And the question often is going to be can they open up below to try to help and formalize the, 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 the informal sector, since these are entities that are less threatening politically, or attract FDI? which is also uh, less threatening politically. Uh, the competitive systems are very interesting. Tunisia, Lebanon, Turkey, perhaps Iraq, perhaps Jordan, Morocco, the West Bank, Gaza becoming more competitive over time. And the question, the, 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 the important realization here is that competition or moving towards democracy can make things worse rather than, than better at the beginning because uh, you know, established, uh, a minute, I'll be, I'll, uh, established contacts are broken, and so even the crony capitalists don't feel secure anymore, uh, and so you have more corruption, and of course the goal is to move towards rule of law, but this is a long-term goal. In the meanwhile, you have instability, you have competition, you have corruption, uh, coloring politics, and so no magic bullet. Uh, the Turkish model could be interesting to the extent that the dominant party rises, Perhaps Iraq would be that case. I wish it's not Tunisia, but it's, it's, it's not impossible. The Moroccan model, uh, where you combine a dominant, well-managed machzan, if you like, with some opening to the opposition, uh, moderation through participation, could that be a model, perhaps, perhaps in Jordan? The Lebanese model of tying up the hands of the state could emerge as a possible uh, agreement between the opposing parties in Tunisia to reduce competition and to reduce the role of the state and therefore move towards uh, you know, less cronism. Uh, in all cases, there is a missing anchor. You know, Turkey had the EU possibilities, and here, what is going to play the role of the anchor? Is it the fear of the street? Big question. Finally, the high oil state, I mean, Saudi Arabia is at a really very rare critical juncture. It's a very interesting moment. The question for them is, are they going to move down? to the middle oil country, populist, uh, anti-private sector model, or are they going to be able to consolidate a model based on uh, skin in the game for the private sector? And the challenge of the labor market Saudization complicates this effort. And, and so in that light, the Ritz-Carlton puzzle, if you like, is you know, what exactly have we learned from this episode? Is it a positive signal? You know, we're cutting the, the the alimony to the royals, and therefore we'll have more for development, or is it the negative signal that you know, we can infringe on property rights and move to a totally different populist, poor welfare state model over time? All these ideas for discussion. Thank you. All right, well, thanks. Um, and I will uh, uh, try and be relatively brief. Um, I, so in my chapter, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to understand uh, state failure and uh, proxy wars as a key structural part of, uh, as a key part of the structure of international relations in the Middle East today. And uh, my basic uh, thing that I've been trying, that I'm observing over the last uh, 
a decade or so, and I think was a key theme, although relatively untheorized in the new Arab wars, is that this is really a fundamentally structural change and that most of our existing theories of international relations in the Middle East don't, very, don't accommodate this very well and they get really fundamental things wrong about the way power and influence work in the Middle East. And so basically uh, what, I'll, what I'm gonna do for 15 minutes or so is kind of walk through how exactly I think we can think theoretically about uh, what this new pattern of failed states and differential state strength combined with both the opportunity and the, um, the reality of uh, ongoing systemic proxy competition and warfare, what that, how we can meaningfully theorize that for international relations. So obviously I'm not the first person to do this. Greg Gauz, Basil Saluch, and others have been talking about the, weak, the return of the weak Arab state as a key part of the structure of the Middle East. But what I want to do is to, is to layer onto that some of the key uh, effects of that, which I think are a systematic pull towards proxy intervention and proxy warfare in a way somewhat similar to what we might think of as, this, as what we do think of in international relations theory as the security dilemma, in which we can all see the destructive impact of, by we I mean policymakers in Arab states and, and analysts and everyone, we can see the negative effects of what's happening. We can see and understand the structure, but we can't escape it. And what we're seeing is this inexorable pull towards highly destructive forms of proxy interventions everywhere around the Middle East, at least everywhere that's open for such competition, in ways with predictable negative repercussions, but which are almost impossible to escape given the structural nature of this, um, of this new reality. So let me walk through this uh, very quickly. Um, obviously, proxy competition, proxy warfare is not something new to the Middle East. So we've all studied the Arab Cold War. We're all familiar with uh, the many manifold forms in which proxy competition, ideological warfare, and those various kinds of um, uh, penetrations of weak states shaped the politics of the 1950s and 1960s. And I think we're all relatively, uh, we all have this kind of shared consensus, I think, of how in the 1970s we see the hardening of Arab states through the combination of oil wealth, the growth of large security sectors, the taming of ideological politics, and we see the relative fading or disappearance of proxy competition and warfare, except in a handful of the, uh, the unfortunate open arenas. Lebanon, uh, most obviously, pity the nation, a place that becomes the battlefield where all the regional powers can fight their wars. I think there's a significant degree in the Palestinian politics of such proxy competition. Only the weakest and most incompetent of states or semi-states are open for such competition because everyone else has developed the means and the capabilities to force them out, to defend their uh, sovereignty such as it is. Um, I think over the 1990s and 2000s, we saw the softening of those states, the forces of globalization, both economic, as we heard from, uh, from Joey and Isaac, um, but also through the rise of new media, Al Jazeera. I think the global war on terror very much uh, regionalized and internationalized the political space, creating all kinds of new opportunities and demands for, uh, for uh, interventions into uh, both on the, the competitive side and on the strengthening of state side through uh, counterterrorism support. Iraq obviously destroys one of the major states in the Middle East, creating a new arena for proxy competition in ways that hadn't been seen since the Arab Cold War. I think a great deal of the sectarianism, of the rising conflict, the emergence of new forms of jihadism, uh, can be related back to the proxy warfare which takes place on Iraqi soil from 2003 onward. 
But it was obviously the Arab uprisings of 2011, which I think generated a genuinely structural change in which the, uh, you know, I'm not going to go through, obviously, everyone else is talking about the Arab uprisings and their ramifications. I'm only speaking about one part of it here, which is that it very, in a very extreme form, it differentially weakened states and created a very profound pattern um, in which the states of the Middle East are profoundly different in terms of their ability to control their borders, their population, and their politics. Um, some states, uh, such as those of the GCC, proved competent enough and powerful enough and rich enough to reassert control and uh, basically to uh, continue more, more or less as is. Others, such as Egypt and Tunisia, reconstituted but became open battlefields for political proxy competition, and, um, and they took their own different forms. I'll talk about it in a moment. And then others simply cracked under the pressure, Syria, Yemen, Libya, Iraq, and became essentially non-states and became arenas in which political competition, proxy competition, became the currency of politics. This is such a large number of states in such, um, in such uh, geopolitically central places that I, I would argue that it's genuinely a structural change. I would say that basically you cannot understand political outcomes in any state in the Middle East, whether it's Egypt and Tunisia or the, the open warfare states, without taking into account this international dimension and the different forms of proxy competition. Now, what do I mean by proxy competition? I think that uh, that's a, it's a word that we throw around a lot. And one of the, you know, it's like a, a fight club, right? One of the fundamental natures of proxies is that no one admits to being a proxy. Uh, it's always something which is politically contested, the definition or framing of someone as a proxy. Um, and uh, I think that uh, there's actually a very poor job in international relations theory of actually conceptualizing what a proxy relationship is and how it actually functions. Um, I think that um, that's a problem if I want to make proxy warfare or proxy competition a central part of the theory of the international relations of the Middle East, it would be useful to be able to define it and at least to know it when we see it. And, and, and I really do mean this. Uh, so for example, the many Egyptians who supported the June 30th, 2013 protest and then subsequently supported the coup don't see themselves as proxies of the UAE and Saudi Arabia, even though in de they de facto were. Um, on the other hand, going to the other extreme, when the Free Syrian Army abandons the fight against Bashar al-Assad and goes to fight Kurds, that is a very clear and strong example of uh, that is a complete proxy relationship. They were given orders to fight a battle which was not their own, and they got on buses and went over and fought it. Right? So, in that space from being kind of the unintended and perhaps um, even angrily denying that one is a, is a proxy to something which is very clearly and manifestly a proxy relationship, there's a wide range. And actually, one of the things which is most interesting about this then is that it gives you a new range of variation when trying to understand this theoretically. So we, I already mentioned the differential state strength as a key variable, but the different forms of proxy relationships also becomes a key variable. So for example, the Muslim Brotherhood has never been anyone's proxy. In fact, they define themselves in many ways by their non-proxy status. And yet, after 2013 and the destruction of the Muslim Brotherhood inside of Egypt, and certain parts of the Muslim Brotherhood take on very clear proxy-type rela proxy relationships as they become more and more dependent on Qatar and Turkey for their very survival. And you begin to see a change in their organizational structure, changes in their behavior, changes in their ideology, and in their levels of independence. 
The Houthis were never an Iranian proxy. Uh, they were a local movement, and uh, they kept their independence and their distance from Iran. But as the pressure of war builds and as the, the demands for weapons and support uh, builds, um, yes, they take on new forms of relationships with Iran, which push them more into the direction of proxiness. In other words, proxiness, the proxy relationship is not a static thing. It's not something which is inherent into uh, one's nature so much as a type of relationship which evolves in response to context and events. I think that, uh, and I could give many examples of this, but I would say that you generate power differently through these different types of proxy relationships. So Iran, for example, has proven extremely effective at building proxies to go and fight in places like Iraq and Syria by mobilizing sectarian relations, but also creating these distinct forms of command and control where you get some, uh, some, not all, but some of the PMF in Iraq, some but not all of the Shia militias fighting in Syria are basically responding directly to Iranian military command, but others are not. And others are local groups who are trying to pursue their own interests in their own ways. But if you compare Iran's ability to mobilize uh, proxies and, and turn them into effective disciplined fighting forces to, say, the Saudi effort to do so in Saudi Arabia, this is a very profound difference in the ability to mobilize and exercise and implement power in the Middle East. Um, the Saudi approach in Syria was extremely ineffective. They struggled to find viable, useful proxies. They threw a lot of money at groups which did nothing for them. Um, the Qatari approach was even worse, where they basically threw money at anyone uh, on the Islamist spectrum who might be willing to fight for them. The Turkish approach changes over time, and I, and I could go through all this if you like, but I'm just trying to sketch out the range of different types of, um, of relationships. Now, ideology and identity are actually quite interesting here because many people have argued that this is actually fundamentally about identity, that the availability and effectiveness of proxies is essentially a function of sectarian identity or the like. So, for example, the reason Iran is effective is because they can mobilize Shia. Right? And, that, and that's the argument you'll often hear. But I actually find that ideology is, and identity are quite flexible when it comes to proxy relationships in the Middle East. The fiercely anti-Islamist uh, UAE has no problem working with Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula in Yemen. Uh, the fiercely anti-Muslim Brotherhood, new Saudi Arabia, uh, happily works with Al-Islah in Yemen. Um, ideology is not necessarily an obstacle, but it might make for less reliable partners. And the degree of enduring control and influence which one can exercise, and once again, the amount of power which can be generated through those relationships. And so really what I'm trying to say then is that the ability to effectively mobilize proxies on the ground, whether through elections in places like Egypt and Tunisia, or through combat in places like uh, uh, Syria, Iraq, uh, Yemen, and Libya, is the currency of power in the Middle East today in very fundamental ways. Not the only one, but one which, if it is not integrated, will lead you to fundamentally incorrect conclusions about the, about the balance of power and uh, the way politics works in the Middle East. Those can change over time, and um, they vary from arena to arena. Now, one of the implications of this, and here's where um, you know, I'm going to be very depressing, as I often am, um, is that in general, what I think we can say generally about proxy warfare and proxy interventions is that they are almost always bad. 
their effects are almost always negative and destructive wherever they take place. And there, I think there's pretty obvious and pretty good reasons for this. So one thing which proxy interventions tend to do is they accelerate state failure. They act as intensifiers of already fragile and weak states. Um, and if you, when you see the arming of insurgents or the arming of proxies in places like Libya or Yemen, this prevents the consolidation of state authority. I think that the failure of the transition in Libya is very much rooted in the way the war was fought and in the types of proxy uh, militias and, uh, and military structures which were formed in 2011, which basically placed military power outside of the hands of the state. But secondly, Outside powers almost always, no, I'll take out the almost, they always have different interests than the local, uh, than locals on the ground. Um, the UAE and Qatar do not care about Libyans. They don't care about Libya. Uh, what they care about is who is winning the proxy war, who is winning the competition between the UAE and Qatar, which means that there might be a profound interest among Libyans in ending the fighting and reconstituting the state, but the key actors who have power on the ground are dependent for money and guns and political support on these outside actors who do not share their interests. And when the outside actors have the upper hand, this makes it extremely difficult to resolve any of these conflicts or to even allow for the independent action of, um, uh, of, the, of the powerful forces on the ground. Um, Proxy competition, especially when it takes the form of, um, of arming of proxy groups, it also um, just leads to environments which are almost inexorably driven towards radicalization and greater degrees of violence. Basically, you're flooding weapons in, and uh, that means the marginalization of people who don't fight. Um, you saw this very clearly in Syria, where the nonviolent protest movement of 2011 is overtaken, first by the Free Syrian Army, then by an ever, ever more radical range of jihadists on the Sunni side. The men with guns win when they have the guns. And that's essentially one problem. You see the emergence of war economies in which you have the men with guns who are now exercising power at the local level and drawing on outside sources of funds and, uh, and military support um, have no interest in wars ending because that would mean the cutting off of their own sources of money and guns. And so you, the emergence of these war economies, again, pushes against the resolution of conflicts. On the sending side, proxy wars are cheap. That's why states do them. Um, it's much easier for the United States to build up the SDF to fight ISIS in Syria than it is for us to send in large numbers of troops of our own. It is virtually costless for Qatar and Saudi Arabia and Iran to uh, meddle and fuel the war in Syria because they pay almost no costs. Money is cheap in the Gulf um, still. And um, you know, what they spend on standing up insurgents and militias inside of Syria is essentially pocket change. They get to fight their wars and pay very few costs. Uh, now, the Syrian people and the Libyan people and the Yemeni people pay enormous costs. But the sponsors do not. What this means is that the incentives push towards more proxy warfare because there's very little counter incentive. And that means you're likely to see more wars. Finally, the academic literature shows pretty clearly that when you have these kinds of externally fueled wars, 
it becomes much harder to resolve them. They tend to last a lot longer. The degree of, of, of um, death and destruction tends to be a lot higher. And I think that's where we are in all of the, the militarized proxy wars in the Middle East right now. Syria, Yemen, Libya uh, are not going to end anytime soon. And I think that's a pretty you know, banal thing to say, but I want to emphasize that one of the reasons for that is the role of external actors and the essential structural nature that these arenas now play in the functioning of the international relations of the Middle East. Now, um, so these are bad proxy wars, um, and they're, but they're inescapable. And I think that from the policy perspective, that creates a very real dilemma. Do, do we, as, we as, as analysts, as, as people giving policy advice, do we identify this as a terrible game and say don't play it? Or do we identify this as the actual structure of the game and say that means you have to play it? That, in essence, has been what the, one of the key American policy arguments about Syria since 2012. Whether it is better to have skin in the game, standing up effective local proxies, or to say, this is a destructive, terrible thing to do, we should stay out of it. Meanwhile, others are standing up their proxies who aren't yours, and therefore you lose influence on the ground. I think that debate is unresolved and is going to become, ever, it's going to become more and more um, uh, pressing as a policy debate and as an intellectual debate in the years coming forward. Um, okay, I have a whole bunch of other things that I was going to say, but I would like to give our discussant time um, to speak, so I will stop there. First of all, I would like to thank the, the speakers. I thought that the, the three papers, I didn't read all of them, and I'm not going to mention who didn't send his paper to me, but one of the things that I really enjoyed in uh, not only in the presentations but also reading the papers, uh, first of all, is that no, I was very surprised, pleasantly surprised, that no one used the word Arab Spring. <laughs> That's great, you know, because in this, in, this our, uh, in this approach of trying to understand this new Middle East, I think we moved from the phase of euphoria to a different phase of analysis. And that uh, pushes us to focus on the event itself. So what does, at what, this if you use a Brodellian approach here, if you look at this, this, uh, this uh, post-2010 or post-2010, nine or post 2003, whatever moment we choose to start this debate, whether Kanana Neo when he said that the Arab Spring started in Iraq or uh, Noam Chomsky talks about Gdim Izzik uh, uprisings in the contested region of Western Sahara between Morocco and the Polisario, each one has at some point tried to understand what's, where we start. What I really liked about these three pa papers is the idea that we have to go back in time, some, uh, some of the, uh, I think Mark mentions the, the question of what we call, what Mark, uh, Malcolm Kerr refers to as the Arab Cold War. Um, uh, uh, the, this, uh, um, Joel talks about going back to this IMF, World Bank uh, moment and early uprisings, even going back to the 60s, students' uprisings and later on, the, the, the uprisings and the uh, protest over bread, over basic staples in the 1980s and 1990s. We might even uh, put there what we, a lot of people have referred to as the Berber Spring or the Printemps Berber in, in Algeria. So all these moments, I think it, they're allowing us at least to give some historical background to understand 
this, long, this event, not in a long durée Brodelian way, but I would say in a very short Brodelian way. And that's actually, that's the approach that we have to take into account to understand this event. And now, after five years of this event, now it gives us a moment to really think about it in a serious way. So uh, one of the things that, when I mentioned, quote unquote, the, the so-called Arab Spring, is this idea that what kind of terminology we're using here. And then that's where, for me, anthropologically speaking, we really, and hopefully we're gonna see this more in the next coming, uh, in the other panels today and tomorrow, is the idea of focusing on the individuals. What does this to individual um, citizens of these different countries in the Middle East? Whether you're talking about satellite countries or core countries, we, we mentioned this, the JCC, uh, the JCC Center, which really is playing a central role, especially led by Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates, despite their differences when it comes even in a place where they agree on, the, on the, their approach to the Houthis and the question of Yemen, there's still, you still, still these proxy uh, wars are still taking place, and I think they will definitely uh, highlight this or continue to um, influence the way how these events is moving forward. So the, the other point that I want to talk about here is this notion, on the, and it's also another common thread in the three presentations, is what, what we hear as this recalibration, readjustment, this continuous, not only at the state, what, what a lot of the uh, speakers talk about is mostly at the macro level and the state level. So uh, what, how this recalibration, recalibration and readjustment is influencing people on the ground. That's also something I think another question that I want uh, the speakers to uh, uh, think about and inviting them to think about it. My third point, and this is not, nothing against uh, probably something more to do with us as, a, as organizers of this, of this uh, conference, is that where do we see the new Middle East universities in this, in this process of rethinking about this? So I think most of the speakers here are coming from the majority with the exception of our uh, keynote speaker, coming from American institutions and some of them are European institutions. So what role local scholars, historians, political scientists are in universities in Egypt or Morocco or Tunisia and so on and so forth are playing in our understanding of this. So I think we have in trying to figure out where and what kind of assessment we, uh, we have about the new Middle East, I think we need to think about what kind of collaborations we are having with, with, with uh, universities throughout the Middle East and North Africa to assess this, this, uh, these changes in a fair way. So I wanna uh, invite, if, if the speakers have anything to say about this, um, I would welcome to say that in a few minutes and then I'll open the floor to uh, the public. Um, I just wanted to, um, your last point, I think, is an extremely important one, and I think it's one that uh, a lot of us have been struggling with and grappling with uh, for, for years now. Um, and I, I think that there are a number of initiatives out there that are trying very hard to build up uh, both relationships with, uh, with uh, Middle East-based universities and also to build their capacity and to try and support uh, uh, those local uh, uh, academic, uh, uh, those academic institutions and, uh, and communities. It, it's, it's really hard, though, um, and I think we have, to be, we have to be frank about how difficult it is given the political conditions in these countries. We essentially cannot do anything in the Gulf. 
Gulf because of, uh, for, because of the repressive nature of the Gulf and also because of the Qatar uh, spat with UAE and Saudi Arabia. It basically means that if we do something in Doha, then nobody from Saudi Arabia or Bahrain or Egypt can attend the workshop and, um, and, and vice versa. And the, 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 the degree of political repression uh, makes it very, very difficult um, in, in many cases. Um, but I think that uh, you're right. This should be an absolute top priority. And I think it is a top priority of, uh, of the Carnegie Corporation in New York has been uh, doing everything it can to try and build up uh, those, to get people to build those kinds of networks. And uh, if you have ideas about it, we'd all very much like to hear them. Right. Yeah, I mean, just to echo what you're saying, Mark, uh, the Economic Research Forum is, a, I think, a very interesting example of, of a regional network. There are about 300 economists uh, in the group, and they're mostly from the region. It's really an association of economists and social scientists from the region. And <clears throat> in the past, we found that kind of the regional forum is a freer forum than any particular country forum. And... Um, that you know, there's enormous energy in the region with many of uh, the universities that have developed over time, with you know, academics that have needs like, like you and me, you know, to publish, to get tenure, to have a journal, to, be, to have research finance, to, to, to meet some of their colleagues uh, and see what's happening in other countries so they don't just you know, copy Western models but think together about how to adapt them to the region. I must say that in the recent period, uh, it's becoming more problematic uh, because uh, the, the institution is based in Egypt, uh, there the are restrictions uh, and increasingly self-censorship on issues of political economy. There's a very interesting debate going on today between uh, Tunisian thinkers and Egyptian academics where the Tunisians are accusing the Egyptians to be too scared of, uh, of repression and to bow too quickly to repression that should actually be testing the limits. But it's, uh, it's a difficult moment. So uh, I have a big advantage over my two colleagues on the panel. I don't do policy recommendations, um, partly because I'm a historian, but also partly because I have zero confidence in the United States government capacity to do anything good in the region. The record is god-awful. And the very first thing that any American scholar should do is stand up and scream about the totally negative effect of our country and its allies in the region, the Saudis and the GCC countries and Israel. Um, so no one's going to accept that as a policy recommendation. So <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't make it as a policy recommendation. Um, second, I, I want to... Uh, second, Mark's uh, statement about the difficulty of institutional collaboration in the region. A and here I speak from two positions that I, places that I've spent years in, Egypt and Israel-Palestine. Um, it, it is almost impossible as things stand now, uh, to have an open dialogue and exchange with our counterparts in Egypt. Um, we would, at a minimum, need to bring them out of Egypt to do that, but then there's the problem of what's gonna happen to them when they go back. Um, 
So I'm very committed to this on the one hand. I've built my career in Egypt around trying to do this, um, but I don't have an answer to this problem. And if anybody uh, does or would like to contribute to an answer, uh, please don't be shy. Israel-Palestine, uh, we have uh, a different sort of situation. Um, I can't take students to Palestine. I've never been able to take Stanford students to Palestine. Well, it's uh, dangerous. Israel is also dangerous, but the Israeli side has the political clout to get around the prohibition, and so students get to go to Israel. Uh, so this, too, is uh, a long-standing and complicated <coughs> issue, uh, but also one that we should not be quiet about. Yeah, go ahead. Short answers, and then I'm going to, next, we're going to take uh, three questions. So, uh, Asla, uh, if I had known what Mark was going to say, <laughs> um, it would have fit very well with the piece of the paper that I didn't give, and that's Tunisia. Mm -hmm. uh, because uh, what you see in the case of Tunisia is that pre-2011, the main Arab investor in Tunisia was the UAE. Yeah. Um, and then post-2011, especially during the period when Nahda led the transition government, uh, there was big influx of capital and investment <coughs> from Qatar. And uh, because of uh, Qatar uh, linked to Al Jazeera, which covered the Tunisian uprising, and there was gratitude for that. Uh, and then Qatar and France are the co-sponsors of the Tunisia 2020 investment conference that happened uh, in the fall, November, late November, I think is the date, uh, and uh, promised billions there, which may or may not materialize. So in fact, um, at the level of political economy in Tunisia, the kinds of arguments that Mark is making work pretty well. Um, they also work, but less well for Egypt because there was an upsurge of Qatari investment in Egypt during the time that Mohamed Morsi was president. But there's the long-term continuity of the dominance of Saudi investment, which goes back, it, it, it was shaped historically in the post-1973 period. I have always been uneasy about the term civil society, but by my understanding of what that would mean, uh, no Arab state has ever really had a, a civil society. Uh, so really what we mean is the capacity of advocacy groups to operate with pre-2011 somewhat less intervention by the state, and certainly in Egypt, the total closing down uh, of that space. But here I think uh, an article that Vicki Langor wrote a long time ago uh, entitled, 
less civil society, more politics is instructive. Civil society, especially in Egypt and Tunisia, the cases I know the best, was a substitute for the inability to conduct mm -hmm. real competitive politics. So now we should go back and be critical of that model and understand that that was never likely really to work. Um, really quickly, um, those are great questions, Asla. Um, I, I think uh, where do civil society and activist networks go? I mean, they lost. Um, and uh, they were destroyed and thrown in jail and killed and um, sidelined by the men in guns. The, at the energy, the, uh, the, you know, the, the energy, the frustration, it's all still there. I mean, I, I think everything I've written, as, uh, and I think most of us have written, points, I think, to the idea that um, the conditions which drove the Arab uprisings are probably, I, I think they're worse than they were in 2010. I think the economic grievances, the, the, the absence of political opportunities. So, so I think that the, the potential is all still very much there, but I think you didn't hear us talking about it here because the conditions right now are such that it's the states and the armed groups that seem to be largely in dominating politics right now, which is, I think, very much the problem. I think your point on uh, uh, the uh, the role of identity—it's a, it's a great—it's a great point. And I, I didn't mean to say that identity and ideology are irrelevant. I, I, I just wanted to push back on the idea that they were 100% controlling. That Kurds will always side with Kurds. That uh, Shia will always side with Iran. Um, but I think you're absolutely right that. Um, that that's part of the variation in the ability to project proxy power. Um, the uh, and identity, I think, goes into that. Um, but but again, I don't think it's all determinative. I also think that a lot of these identities are endogenous. Um, I think that think about how anti-Islamism came to define the identity of so many Egyptians and Tunisians between 2011 and 2013. Uh, that was in many ways a new identity, which I think then made them into something which they had not been previously. I think you see a lot of that in Syria. You see a lot of it in Iraq, um, and uh, so I think that's an important part of it uh, as well. And on the I, and yes, I completely agree with you on the difference between like Syria and Yemen for Saudi Arabia. I think it, the more the farther away you are, the more proxy it's going to be. But you look at Egypt, for example. I mean, they're very heavily involved directly in in uh, Libya in way because they pay the blowback costs much more directly than um, say Qatar, the UAE do. Um, and uh, so it's, it's different if you're, you know, kind of fueling a war in Lebanon or, or Syria versus it being right on your border, absolutely. Yeah, two quick points on, on, on public, on, on, on uh, civil society. You know, my other hobby is to look at public opinion. And it's really interesting uh, when you look at the, the changes in public opinion before and after the events of 2011, whichever way we call them. Uh, I mean, before 2011, you see a rise in, in emancipative kind of demands for more commitment for democracy uh, and, and, and the like. Uh, and it's very much concentrated among, you know, educated individuals, richer, richer individuals. You know, in many ways, at, at least the way you see it in the opinions, particularly in Egypt, it's, it's kind of a modernization drive. What you see after uh, is, is, is a collapse of this kind of emancipative uh, opinions or values uh, because uh, in reaction to the increase in security, uh, economic, physical, repressive, and, and, and the like. So it, it, it really comes down everywhere. Uh, question is whether this is short term or not. But what's interesting is the way the composition changes. Uh, the kind of the salon Democrats are back in their salon 
And it is the poor now that used to have kind of low belief in, in this as a way of, 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 of making progress that, that remain committed to, to more opening, more democracy, more, more civic action. So it's as if, it, we'll have to see the trends, it's as if we're, we're, we're shifting from kind of modernization logic to a class struggle logic where you know, some people have discovered that voice in the street makes a difference and that would not go away. So to be followed on the Turkish model. I mean, you notice that I've put 2000, 2014, so it's a conditional model, right? Because, because it, it, it ends in 2014 with a split of the dominant party. Now, the question is, was that kind of predestinated? Was, was the movement doomed? Do we have to say it's not a model? I mean, you know, uh, after all, there was a doubling of incomes. There were 14 years of very rapid growth. Uh, uh, you know, lots of uh, parts of the countries got included in that growth. Um, now, the seed of that growth, by the way, was planted probably by the, 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 the politics of Ozal during military <laughs> regime, during military regime. So, you know, is that bad? So, do we have to judge these phases of growth uh, by the way they ended up? And so, for example, uh, if, if a Nahda takes over now in Tunisia and gives us 15 years of growth this way, you know, the, 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 the advantage inclusion that gives us growth, these people vote for them, it's a virtual circle that, that keeps going on. Or in Iraq, uh, you know, a party we don't like gets onto a path like that, a path of inclusion and growth. Is it doomed from the beginning so that we can, from the beginning, say this cannot work? After all, the party became dominant because it succeeded in, in generating growth and therefore votes. I think the end is contingent. I mean, uh, I don't know uh, why, what happened in 2014, you know, why this fight with, with the Gulenists, and you know, to what extent is it related to the EU anchor not working and to Syria, and maybe history could have been different. I'm not ready to say it was predestined to fail and that therefore you know, 15 years of growth with a stable political, economic, inclusive system is something we need to reject from the beginning because you can predict that the party will become dominant and, uh, and this will explode uh, later on. 